Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education, offering the SMU Certificate Program, where you can take courses in art, architecture, history, literature, and more. Registration online at smu.edu CAPE. There will never be another president like George H.W. Bush. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd. The first President Bush was certainly the last greatest generation politician to ascend to the White House, completing a Pacific combat mission even after his plane was hobbled by enemy fire. He went on to a career shaped and perhaps limited by duty, chairing the Republican National Convention uh, Committee at the zenith of the Watergate scandal and agreeing to run the CIA despite his fears that the post signaled the end of his career in electoral politics. The first President Bush was open to taking positions almost guaranteed to hurt him with hardliners within his own party when he judged them to be right for the country at large. And he was a one-term president. Historian John Meacham is the author of a new biography of the elder President Bush. He teaches at Vanderbilt University and the University of the South. He won the Pulitzer for his book about Andrew Jackson, American Lion. The new book is called Destiny and Power, the American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. John, welcome back to Think. Thanks for having me. The working title of this book was The Last Gentleman. What was that about and why did you change it for publication? I figured that... I believe he was in many ways the last gentleman uh, in in American presidential politics for the reasons you just laid out, the last president of the greatest generation, an embodiment of Cold War statesmanship. But the more I thought about it, the more complicated and complex a figure uh, George H.W. Bush became. He believed he was destined for great things Uh, and in that sense, he had almost more in common culturally and temperamentally with the Founding Fathers and with the Roosevelts than he does with his own contemporaries. And if you believe that you're destined to do great things, then what you say and what you do to amass power matters less than what you do once you have it. And to me, the great redemptive feature of George H.W. Bush is that while he was imperfect and could run very hard campaigns – The key thing about him is that when he actually was in office, whether it was in Congress or in the White House, he did something quite unusual. He did things that put the country ahead of his own political interest. How has he been misunderstood um, from the days that he was running for office until this time after he's been out of office for some years? Well, I think he'd be the first to admit that uh, he is not the most gifted of speakers. Uh, Political rhetoric was not something that uh, came easily to him. He was one of the great one-on-one politicians in American history. I mean, he won the presidency by charming individual after individual after individual over, over many decades. But as President Obama told me, I interviewed him for this, he thinks that Bush is one of our most underrated presidents. And I think part of it was Bush actually believed that the vision thing, as he put it, that a sufficient public vision was to try to help people, to try to make the world a little better, as he put it to me, Uh, almost as if saying, isn't that vision enough? He also believed that he would be judged on results, not on how well he talked about those results. And I do think that was a political weakness for him since the presidency is, as uh, others have noted long before, preeminently a place of moral leadership. 
That's the phrase that Franklin Roosevelt used for it. I fought for my country. I've served. I've built. And I'll go from the hills to the hollows, from the cities to the suburbs, to the loneliest town on the quietest street, to take our message of hope and growth for every American, to every American. I will keep America moving forward, always forward, for a better America, for an endless, enduring dream and a thousand points of light. This is my mission, and I will complete it. That was Bush, um, President George H.W. Bush, accepting the 1998 presidential nomination at the Republican National Convention. Perhaps the most famous words that he ever spoke, John Meacham. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so interesting to hear that clip again because it demonstrates a lot of the points that you make in the book, not least of which is that he was raised by his parents to be quite self-effacing. The great I am was the uh, the you were not supposed to use the first person pronoun uh, in the Bush family. Uh, Don't be a braggadocio, uh, Dorothy Walker Bush used to tell her son. And I do think that part of his issues were that he was raised at at once to be competitive, uh, to win the race, to win the match, but then not talk about it. And I, I there's a a um a tension that runs throughout his life that I found fascinating in the biogra- in, in doing the biography between service self effacement and the rawest kind of ambition uh, I once said to him, you know Mr. President, if you had wanted to only serve, you could have opened a soup kitchen, <laughs> but instead you sought ultimate authority in a nuclear age uh, that requires a competitive spirit. And he raised that big left hand. He's left-handed and, and sort of punch, punctuated the air with it. And he said, my goal was, was to be number one, to be the captain of the team, to achieve whatever goal I, I had to. You just heard that in, in the 88 speech clip there. The, the theme was his life had been defined by missions, whether over Chichijima, as you mentioned, when he was shot down uh, on the 2nd of September 1944. Uh, the mission of making his way in Texas oil, making making money, the mission to get his family through the loss of their daughter Robin to leukemia in the early 1950s, the mission of, of helping Barbara through that, putting – and Mrs. Bush's very moving words that it was George who put me back together every night, hmm. uh, the mission of um, going into politics. And I, it's not fake with him. It is It is – as real as the air he breathes, uh, that his life was defined by these challenges. His ambient reality, this is very important to remember, his ambient reality, again, had more in common with the noblesse oblige of the Roosevelts. And noblesse oblige now has a kind of negative connotation. But what it really means is that if you're privileged, you owe something back. And Bush always knew uh, that to whom much is given, much is expected. He easily, easily could have gone to Wall Street, made a ton of money, lived in Greenwich, disappeared into a martini pitcher every night. Um, but he didn't. He moved to Texas. He wanted an adventure. He told me once, he said, you know, I could have gone to Wall Street, but it just wasn't different enough. I couldn't make my own way. And it's a very moving American story in many ways. 
How did he choose to establish a career in the oil business in Texas? I, I, mean, I, I guess it was an adventure, but he could have had a lot of different adventures that were different than Wall Street, but a little closer to home. Well, he's very, uh, very straightforward about that. Um, he responds to that saying, we all just wanted to make a lot of money quick. <laughs> uh, so uh, I know you in Texas don't. I'm sure that's not still true. Um, he, he, a, a family friend, uh, Neil Mallon, uh who they named their son Neil after, yeah. uh, was the head of Dresser Industries. He had been an old colleague of Prescott Bush's. And uh, he started out as an oil equipment salesman. Uh, there was a sort of a – it was sort of chic back in the – right after the war. Um, Bush had been discharged in 1945, um, had married Barbara on January 6th of 45, was getting ready to go back to the Pacific uh, when the atomic bombs ended the war. He went through Yale in two and a half years and left for Texas in a red Studebaker that his parents had given him on uh, in 1948. One of my favorite stories, uh, which you will appreciate, is he recalls stopping for lunch in Abilene. And it was his first encounter with Lone Star beer and chicken fried steak. And he, and he was unsure whether it was chicken fried like a steak or steak fried like a chicken. And he said he's still not sure, but he's had a lot of it ever since. Um, so Texas was a um, a place – it was a growing market. It was a place to make some money. Uh, he was a great, great at raising money back east. Um, and as I say, he was an equipment salesman. They moved to California for a year, moving around, learning the business. Uh, initially, they moved to Odessa, and Odessa was considered so remote – that uh, Barbara's mother back in Rye, New York, would send them boxes of soap, uh, <laughs> figuring it was not commercially like on available. on the frontier, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. She, as, Bar- as Mrs. Bush said, um, as far as my mother was concerned, we might as well have been in Odessa, Russia. Um, but then they moved to Midland, and then they moved to Houston. And um, his commitment to Texas is really interesting. Um, when he lost uh, his second Senate race, he lost in 64, then he lost in 1970, When he was about to be appointed ambassador to the United Nations in 1970-71 after the Senate loss, one of the reasons Richard Nixon wanted Bush to to take the U.N. job was – this is something that's been unreported. I found it in Mrs. Bush's diary – was Nixon had the thought that Bush could move back to Connecticut, commute into the U.N., establish residency, and then run for the Senate again, Hmm. but this time in Connecticut. If he had done that. He would never have been president because New England Republicans, of which there are now, I think, two uh, in, the, in, the, in the country, uh, were, were, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and there are a lot of turning points like that. I don't, I don't think he would have been president if he hadn't come to Texas. Uh, George, I talked to George W. Bush about that. He's absolutely certain of that, that neither of them would have been president if, uh, if they'd grown up in the Northeast. Nixon uh, also asked him to chair the RNC at the height of the Watergate scandal, putting um, Bush— What second prize, exactly? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of relationship did those two have, Nixon and the elder Bush? Uh, it's a great question. Bush always deferred to the wishes and will of whoever the president was, and that included ultimately his own son. Um, Nixon was an, an early example of that. He Bush understood. This is in his diaries that I I went through for this book quite quite carefully. Uh, he understood that Nixon didn't think he was tough enough, didn't think he had an instinct for the jugular, and part of that came from the fact that Bush was unwilling 
during Watergate to be a unnuanced defender of Nixon. He wouldn't put out the mean statement. Um, and Nixon, uh, he believed, thought Bush to be a, a soft Ivy Leaguer. And I think that that impression uh, – President Bush told me this uh, – the impression that Bush might not quite have enough steel in his spine came from the Nixon era when he wasn't one of those tough-talking guys around around Nixon. And we know how well that turned out. Um, so, so Bush was right to be true to himself and not to um, try to be a hardcore Paul – uh, he loved foreign affairs once he went to the UN, uh, and at the end of the at the end of the scandal on August sixth, uh, nineteen seventy four, Nixon left on August 9th, uh, Bush wrote him a letter saying he thought it was time for him to resign, and said the same more or less to Nixon's face in a cabinet meeting. Uh, so th- there was always a, a quiet and persistent political courage in Bush. What did he learn during his time as U.S. envoy to China? He learned how big the world was. He learned how complicated diplomacy really was. And he was able to put into action, into diplomatic and political action, his personal code. And his personal code basically, as you probably know – is the threshold for friendship in George H.W. Bush's universe is pretty much just meeting George H.W. Bush. And so he was able to, in China, make friends, make allies in the diplomatic community. And he also learned patience because the Chinese don't measure the time the same way we do. I'm speaking this hour with John Meacham, who teaches history at Vanderbilt University and the University of the South about his new book, Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. If you'd like to join our conversation, we have lines open at 1-800-933-5372. You can also email think at kera.org or find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for Think comes from the SMU Graduate Liberal Studies Program. You can apply now for spring 2016 to design your own master's or doctoral degree at SMU, specializing in human rights, organizational dynamics, and more. Details at smu.edu gls. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with John Meacham about his new book, Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372 or email think at KERA.org. John, the first President Bush, before he was the first President Bush, uh, headed the CIA for just under a year. Many people certainly dream about achieving that position. Bush took it purely out of a sense of duty. Why did that strike him as a dead-end post? Well, you have to put yourself back into the mindset of 1975-76. The agency had gone through a terrible period of scandals. Um, Various assassination plots had been uh, discovered. the fact that the CIA uh, may have spied on Americans domestically, which is in violation of its charter. Uh, so Congress was very much on the hunt 
uh, for any malfeasance at, at the CIA. Morale was terrible. Uh, the conventional wisdom in the Washington of the time is that a director of the CIA would never be able to mount a bid for national office. And so he saw it as a political graveyard. But uh, he said that uh, if that's what the president wants, that's what he would do. And he turned out to be an immensely popular director. You know, he, he, as you say, he was there for less than a year, but they named the building after him. Uh, it's the George H.W. Bush Center uh, out there in Langley right now. Um, and he won people's hearts by immediately throwing himself, as he had done at the U.N., as he had done at China, in China, he threw himself into the job and believed always in the power of a personal relationship. Um, one of the things we don't see in Washington now uh, as much as we should is uh, a political culture that tries to find common ground and it finds that common ground by forming personal bonds so that you know, you're, you're never going to vote with somebody you oppose 90% of the time or even 50% of the time. But you might get one or two or three key votes if you trust and like the other person. And George Bush totally believed in the power of personal diplomacy. Henry Kissinger was always telling him, it doesn't matter whether they like you. And Bush could not have disagreed more. He was not Ronald Reagan's first choice for vice president. How did he end up on the bottom of the Reagan ticket in 1980? Oh, it's one of the great sagas in American life. You could, you could argue that uh, in modern American political history, three days in Detroit in July of 1980 shaped, uh, shaped almost everything that followed. Uh, Reagan's pollsters had told him that if he could lure Gerald Ford out of retirement, former President Ford, that a Reagan-Ford ticket ran strongest against Carter and Mondale. And Reagan wanted to win. Uh, he, had, he also didn't like Bush very much at that point. Uh, p primary opponents tend not to form great bonds, right. uh, as you might imagine. And um, so in what was a crazy convention, you know, we just don't have them like this anymore, Reagan starts negotiating with former President Ford on the Monday and the Tuesday of the convention to see if they can strike an agreement by which Ford would come on the ticket. It ultimately fell apart after Walter Cronkite used the phrase co-presidency in, <laughs> in an interview with Ford. And uh, there were two people uh, – Bush was watching it in his hotel, but there were two people watching it in Reagan's suite. One was Governor Reagan and the other was Nancy Reagan. Hmm. And you can imagine their, resp their response to that. Um, and Bush had come in second. Uh, and also, it's hard to believe now, given how conservative the Republican Party has become. But Bush, who was seen as more of a moderate, certainly a moderate conservative, th the moderates still had a pretty strong uh, dwindling, but still a, were a formidable enough presence that Reagan, as the Reagan, was, Reagan in that era said, I need to convince people I'm not a combination of the mad bomber and Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, and George Bush helped him do that. There were questions to Bush about how he felt about the Republican Party's um, platform position on abortion at the time. It was. He was uh, – he did not favor a pro-life amendment to the Constitution. Uh, he favored the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, again, let that sink in for a second. Hmm. A The man who came in second for president of the United States in the Republican primary in 1980 was in favor of the ERA. Um but he also believed that whoever won, won, and you can only have one president at a time. 
And so he said he could support the platform without reservation, and he did. Let's go to the phones now, 1-800-933-5372. We have Mark on the line in Dallas. Hi, Mark. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. And thanks for uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to listen in. I had a question about um, just the obviously seemingly seeming success that George Herbert Walker Bush has had and did have uh, in in terms of the United States' role with China. Um, it seems as if it's deteriorated in subsequent presidencies. I'm wondering what we could have learned, what we haven't learned from President Bush in terms of just our role and our relationship with China. Mm, it's a great question. Uh, you know, he was president, of course, so he was there in um, 1974 and 75, basically. And then, of course, was president in June of 1989 during the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre and took a great deal of political heat for attempting to put the long-term relationship with the regime ahead of a more emotional reaction to the self-evident human rights abuses uh, in those demonstrations. He – this is part of what he had learned in China to go back to what we were just talking about, that you have to be patient, that relations between nations have their – are kind of like marriages. They have good days and bad days. Um, Sometimes there's a – sometimes one needs to take a fishing trip from the other. Uh, And I think that since – George H.W. Bush's uh, uh, presidency, the country has continued to move. Uh, China has obviously continued to move, and it continued to try to blend the economy with 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 the communist system. Um, I think the great question, and Bush would be the first person to say he would have to be more involved in the details to give an answer to it, is how expansionist ultimately is China, which I think is perhaps behind your question. Um, are they a potential regional power in a way that in a post-Cold War world recreates uh, spheres of influence where you'll have Russia, China, the United States uh, competing in ways that were more familiar in the 19th century and parts of the 20th than it has been uh, during the Cold War. Mrs. Reagan and Mrs. Bush were sophisticated enough not to show this in public necessarily, but they were not Uh close. They were not at all fond of each other. Did that have an impact on the ability of their husbands to work together and to form the kind of bond that ideally you want between a president and a vice president? You know, I found the vice presidential years of George Bush to be very interesting. I was sort of expecting to blow through them pretty fast. Uh, Because what's he doing, right? Well, yeah, he's vice president, you know. um, but he ha- he left a good number of diaries, and the more people I talked to, uh, the more I became convinced that uh, he and Reagan had a real working relationship, or certainly as real a working relationship as Ronald Reagan had with anyone. Uh, the only two people who were there from day one to the last day of the administration were Mrs. Reagan and George Bush, and I do not think that the tensions – And it wasn't just tensions between Mrs. Reagan and Mrs. Bush. There was tensions between Mrs. Reagan and the Bushes. Hmm. Um, And I talked to a lot of folks about trying to figure this out. And part of it is probably just a Hollywood culture thing. Uh, In Hollywood, there can be a leading man and a leading lady. And then the co-stars are expected to stay way off the stage. And 
even though the Bushes were as self-effacing and respectful as you could possibly imagine. Uh, they were wonderful at that. I don't think there was any way to um, to please Mrs. Reagan totally on that. Uh, the other thing about a vice president, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, he is the embodiment of the hint of mortality of the president, uh, and so hmm. I think that perhaps Mrs. Reagan saw looked at George Bush and um, it reminded her of what could be a dark day. Uh, which would be the loss of Ronnie. That's a lot of psychoanalysis, but it makes sense to me. Did it get worse after the assassination? I, I be, as a historian, I practice psychiatry without a license <laughs> and at a much less hourly rate than I should get. <laughs> I'm sorry, what question? Did, did, did it get worse after the assassination attempt on Reagan's life? You know, it, 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 it didn't get worse. It was about the same, which is, which is remarkable because March 30th, 1981, uh, uh, it was a Monday. Uh, Pre- President, Vice President Bush is in Texas. Uh, President Reagan is shot around 2.20 in the afternoon. Bush immediately turns the plane around, is coming back. As you remember, there's that great chaos in um, attempting to uh, establish control and calm at the White House. Al Haig gets up and misstates the, the order of secession and says that – as of now, I'm in control here at the White House, <laughs> pending the return of the vice president from Texas. And if anything came up, I would check with him, of course, which was big of him. Um, and Bush, on his way in, the Secret Service, while he's on Air Force Two, the Secret Service suggests that he land in Marine One, the helicopter, on the South Lawn. And so we have this dramatic image of the vice president coming to calm everything down. Bush instinctively reacted negatively to that. He thought it would be showboating. He thought it would send the wrong signal. He thought it would distract attention from Reagan. And so he overruled the Secret Service and came in a car. And it was that kind of humility that I think was a place where his personal character intersected with his political identity. There were people in the Situation Room after that long, chaotic afternoon who had always referred to him as George before that day. Hmm. But he was always Mr. Vice President afterward. When it came time to once again run for president at the conclusion of the Reagan years, um, in some ways, George H.W. Bush had an image problem to combat. I remember I was young at the time, but I remember the word wimp being thrown around. And I, yep. I don't know that that was ever accurate, but it was certainly a stereotype in the media. Did that have anything to do with his selection of a vice presidential candidate like Dan Quayle? Uh, the 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 wimp factor, as Newsweek famously called it, w- was a was a critically important element in um in ninety eight in eighty eight, and but it was really about what I think the impact of it was that it made Bush tougher, it gave him something to prove, and Michael Dukakis and Bob Dole sort of felt the brunt of that. Um, Bush said in his diary, uh, late in the eighty eight campaign. If I had kept letting the press define me as a wimp or a loser, I would not be closing in and possibly winning the biggest job in the world. He was willing to do what it took to become president in order to then use power to help people and try to create – and he did. uh, It's the last sort of great centrist moment in American life. Um, Can you imagine a Republican president today signing the Americans with Disabilities Act? Hmm. 
can you imagine a Republican president or a Democrat president get putting together as far-reaching a piece of environmental legislation as the Clean Air Act, which is functionally our environmental policy today? Can you imagine a president going against his own self-political interest, breaking a pledge about taxes because he believed that the deficit had to come down and that he was willing to pay the political price to do it? George Bush did all of those things, and he did them knowing that in the short term he would pay a price, but in the long term history would probably judge him favorably, and I think that was the right bet. I might have assumed that anyone with the social skills to ascend to the presidency has some kind of a sense of humor. I was surprised to learn that he found this sort of thing amusing. Tonight our Jewish friends observe the fifth night of Hanukkah. The celebration of a military victory won centuries ago in a part of the world where today 400,000 brave Americans await my order to annihilate Iraq. <laughs> and none of us want war in that whole area out over there. But as Commander-in-Chief, I am ever cognizant of my authority to launch a full-scale orgy of death there on the desert sand. <laughs> Probably won't, but then again, I might. That, of course, was Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live impersonating the first President Bush. And he told you that he would ha- a friend would send him like VHS tapes of yeah. SNL so that he could watch them in his spare time. Yeah, Sig Rogic, or Rogic, a great friend of uh, of Bush's, would send it to him, uh, and he loved him. And um, I interviewed Dana uh, Carvey for this book, and um, one of the things that was so fun about doing this project is, no kidding, one day this summer I had conversations within a single hour with Dana Carvey and Henry Kissinger. So there are very <laughs> few people who could bring those two together. But Dana did a lot of the interview in character, so I'm still not sure. It might have been the old man uh, <laughs> calling in. He said that it, basically to do a George H.W. Bush, you had to take Mr. Rogers with an overlay of John Wayne, hmm. and that, that gave it to you. Um, what's sweet about that um, that story, though, is the, the bitterness of the 92 loss and, and the, the colossal um, – uh, pain that that Bush felt when he lost re-election, he actually called Carvey and asked him to come to the White House to cheer up the staff hmm. uh, around Christmas. And there are very few presidents who would bring their Saturday Night Live tormentor uh, in. He had them spend the night in the White House. It was hugely successful. They've stayed close. And uh, Carvey told me that uh, Bush himself does a pretty good Jimmy Cagney. <laughs> On a far more serious note, John, there was a not only a, like a, a period of, of grief when he lost the 92 election, he was a little bit um, at loose ends after the end of the first Gulf War. He never celebrated that victory. Uh, one of the revealing things about his diary, and the main reason I was able to do this project, is he granted me unconditional access to his vice presidential and presidential diaries, which were dictated uh, so you ha- you can hear his voice as all these things are, are, are happening. It's as close to the presidency as a lot of us are ever going to get. Uh, it's a really remarkable document. But beginning in March and April of 1991, uh, while he was at 89 percent in the polls uh, after the defeat of uh, Iraq uh, in the Kuwait War, 
he had fantasies that he would go into the press room and just say, I'm not going to run again. Uh, he had a kind of post-victory despondency that um, prefigured a very difficult 1992. John Meacham is my guest. He teaches history at Vanderbilt University and the University of the South. We're talking about his new book, Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. We'll resume our conversation in a couple of minutes. If you'd like to join it, you can send email to think at kera.org or call Funding for THINK comes from the SMU Graduate Liberal Studies Program. You can apply now for spring 2016 to design your own master's or doctoral degree at SMU, a customizable evening graduate program for working professionals. More at smu.edu slash gls. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with historian John Meacham. His new book is called Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. Let's go to the phones now at 1-800-933-5372. We have Vladimir online in Dallas. Hey, Vladimir. Hello. Hi. Go right ahead, please. Um, I have a question to John. I was born in Ukraine and... uh, in uh, 19, I don't remember, in early 90s, when it, it, the Gorbachev started perestroika and uh, Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian parliament uh, adopted declaration of independence and we were euphoric about um, changes that uh, will follow. And at the same time, I remember that uh, George Bush came to Ukrainian parliament for visit, I don't know, what kind of visit was it to the Soviet Union? And he, instead of praising uh, possible changes, he started talking about Ukrainian nationalism and something. And uh, we were shocked. It was like a cold shower. We were thinking that uh, uh, West will 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 like those changes. So, and what are comments George can uh, tell about uh, this? Was it a blunder or how? It uh, con- how it's, it looks like now, this uh, this speech in Ukrainian parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a <clears throat> quite famous speech. Uh, William Sapphire of the New York Times nicknamed it the Chicken Kiev speech uh, <laughs> back in real time. Uh, part of the speech was that uh, freedom is not the same as independence. And what, he, what Bush was doing at the time is he believed f- for firmly that Gorbachev was a partner for peace and for reform. And as things, as the republics continued to break away, as the repercussions from uh, Perestroika and Glasnost and the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, sped up, there were a couple of moments where Bush's innate caution, uh, he was someone who believed in the word prudence. Uh, He believed that... uh, Sometimes, again, this is a a lesson he learned in China, Uh, sometimes you had to play a longer game. Uh, He he wanted to make sure that uh, whatever happened in Ukraine uh, happened with the proper pacing and was trying to support Gorbachev, who was quickly losing uh, political favor uh, 
and Boris Yeltsin was on, on the way up. So um, in historical retrospect, uh, yes, it was uh, an unfortunate moment. At the time, I think Bush's heart was in the right place. Why does he think he lost to Bill Clinton in 1992? Well, he would tell you that Ross Perot was uh, a, a name somewhat familiar to your audience. Indeed. Uh, was, was a critical factor. My own view is that it was a perfect storm. Um, you had 12 years of Republican rule, which we did not do um, except for the Roosevelt-Truman era uh, in the 20th century. Uh, so his, he was a little bit on history's borrowed time anyway. Uh, the recession of uh, 1991 was um, uh, not as deep as people thought it was, but it still mattered. Um, he himself was uh, in a kind of letdown after the Gulf War. He was suffering from a thyroid condition that affected his acuity and energy levels, not his fitness for office, but certainly his enthusiasm for for the campaign trail. Um, And there was Bill Clinton, uh, who was a remarkable – is a remarkable political talent. Uh, There was also the Pat Buchanan challenge against against Bush in the primaries. You take – you know, if you had three factors and you took one of those out, maybe he wins. I think all of those factors – uh, just built up a, a sense of inevitability about that election. The other thing that's sort of interesting is his approval numbers started going up almost immediately after he lost. <laughs> uh, he left. It was almost as though the country had a kind of fit uh, and then um, and then began to feel uh, more warmly toward the old fella. Um, and I think that's what's happened historically, at least in my research, is many of the things that defeated him or that were unpopular – in real time, uh, now in retrospect, seem to have been wise. So you have the 1990 budget deal where he broke the read my lips, no new taxes pledge. He raised taxes a little bit uh, because he believed that getting the deficit under control and getting some budgetary reforms was important. And Bill Clinton will tell you at length that that was a key part of setting up the prosperity of the 1990s. So what hurt him in the short term was good for the country in the long term. Uh, going to Not going to Baghdad, but f- following the limited nature of the mission to liberate Kuwait and protect Saudi Arabia from Saddam was criticized by some in real time. I think we now see that that was probably a wise public policy decision given the circumstances. So this is the difference between history and journalism. What I tried to do in Destiny and Power is – explain this president with the perspective of a quarter century. And he may look different in another quarter century, but I know he looks different uh, than he did two or three years or four years out um, because often you have to allow a couple of decades to pass so that the passions of the moment can can fade and you can take a more clear-eyed view of what he accomplished and what he didn't. And now... I ask that we uh, stand behind our new president, and regardless of our differences, all Americans shame the, share the same purpose, uh, to make this, the world's greatest nation, more safe and more secure, and to guarantee every American a shot at the American dream. 
That, of course, was um, President Bush's concession speech in Houston in 1992 after losing to then-Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton for the presidential election. Interesting, if you believe in Freudian slips, interesting when he, there we hear the word shame. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a shame to lose the presidency. Uh, it's not shameful, but um, certainly one can understand how devastating that would feel. I'm so excited, John Meacham, to be able to talk to you about this because for a very long time I've been a little bit obsessed with the friendship that formed between mm-hmm. um, then-former President Clinton and former President Bush, the first President Bush, um, on these humanitarian missions, they are really and truly friends today. They are. They are. And and Bush has a a talent, a genius for friendship. And I think uh, President Clinton enjoys, um, you know, like anyone who meets George Bush pretty much, uh, enjoys his company. Um, To go back to 92 for a second, I mean, after that speech, about an hour or so after that speech, he's lying in uh, their room at the Houstonian Hotel. It was suite 271 down at the Houstonian, and Barbara's fallen asleep. He can't sleep, so he gets up and goes in the living room and dictates into the the diary that I drew on. Uh, He's whispering because he doesn't want to wake up Barbara. Um, And he just talks about how painful it is and how he so wanted to prove the pundits right uh, wrong in the end. He so wanted to prove the critics wrong, but that they were right and he was wrong. And it's just, it's anguish. You hear the human pain in his voice uh, and love him or hate him, uh, vote for him or no, didn't vote for him. Uh, the human drama of a president losing his office is, you know, it's like Achilles in his tent. You know, it's a remarkable uh dramatic story and i was privileged to be able to listen to these tapes um and you just you're you're just right there with him um and then uh year year two later uh, bush goes back to the clinton white house spends the night there helps support the passage of nafta uh which he had negotiated under clinton um and then in during the presidency of george w bush uh President Bush, 43, asked his father and Bill Clinton to do some significant relief work, and that's where the friendship really took off. They were joined together, and I think both liked the idea of sending the signal to both to the United States but also to the rest of the world that uh, partisan differences did not have to foreclose joint humanitarian efforts. It is strange to imagine uh, well, let's just say this. A lot of people are talking today about there's a piece in The New York Times that sort of picked, Jerry picked the, the most, not salacious, but critical things that the first President Bush had to say about um, very prominent members of his son's presidential administration. To me, these are not so surprising, and they weren't in the book because I feel like by his silence all those years, we had a sense of what he was thinking. Am I wrong about that? <laughs> that's very interesting. Um, I don't know. That's that's a terrific insight. Um, because he wasn't rallying the troops and waving pom-poms, did, was, did we assume the other? Um, certainly the conventional wisdom assumed the other, uh, assumed what you're saying. Uh, my own experience with the president in talking about his his son is that – and with the son talking about the father – is that there is a deep, deep bond of love and affection and, and mutual respect and deference, so much so that um, I don't think they had a great many conversations about substance or policy. I think the father believed it was the son's turn. I think the son believed that – he had a moral obligation to do it on his own, uh, 
reaching out to people if he had to, but that uh, he was reluctant to – I ask him this. Uh, I think he was reluctant to appear overly dependent on the previous generation, and they were facing different challenges. I mean the strategic environment in the country after September 11th was radically different than the strategic environment after the invasion of Kuwait. Uh, President Bush, 41, told me, I don't like to talk about the father and the son's wars because they were different wars for different reasons. And as irresistible narratively as dynastic tensions might be, I don't really think there were a lot. Um, I think the president, as I report, uh, did tell me that he thought that uh, Vice President Cheney and uh, Secretary Rumsfeld and his own son uh, on a couple of occasions had contributed to an unfortunate impression of American swagger. Uh, But you have to put that in context. The first George Bush, who used the terms good versus evil uh, about Saddam Hussein, and the first George Bush who was willing to risk impeachment if Congress had had not voted him the authority to go, was George Herbert Walker Bush, not George Walker Bush. So to my mind, that underscores a very important historical point, at least to me, which is it's you almost never know what you're going to do behind that desk unless you're behind that desk. And I think that's, to me, that's the ultimate takeaway. If the elder President Bush could have chosen one of his sons to be president, would it have been Jeb? No, I don't think so. I, 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 um, I think that, again, sort of uh, Game of Thrones uh, parlor game is uh, is uh, is wrongheaded about about the Bushes. Uh, I think the Bushes talk about, as Jeb Bush told me, sports, family, and well, that's about it. Um, <laughs> you know, and the other thing about uh, President Bush forty three that people don't realize is he was a, a political animal early on. Uh, one of the things I report in the book that. Um, at least certainly wasn't widely known and I think may not have been known at all, is that he looked at a Senate race, state Senate race in uh, Houston in 1972. Um, and, of course, he ran uh, out in West Texas for Congress in 1978. So this idea that he was somehow not politically involved or not uh, on the scene politically is wrong. Jeb didn't run. Um and so I think it's a big family. I think it's uh, I think both those men, uh, George W. Bush and Jeb Bush, went into politics in part because of their love and their reverence for this amazing man. Um, they love their father. They revere their father. And I think part of their motivation is, at least in my view, after spending a lot of years on this, was they wanted to try to do what the man they most admired in the world had done. And I think that's admirable. I want to close with this pretty briefly. After spending all these years working on this and coming to know the president through those very intimate diaries, audio diaries, and multiple interviews, do you have to stay vigilant about objectivity? Was it a concern for you at any point in the process? Oh, yeah, always. Always always a concern. Um, Absolutely. And I think the reason President Bush ultimately trusted me with the documents and Mrs. Bush with, with her diaries was um, uh, because they were confident that I would call them like I saw them, uh, uh, and I hope I did. Um, I, I do think, as I said, that President Bush, 41, ultimately 
did what he could to put the country first. I think that I believe I can clinically prove that case. Um, but you always worry about uh, falling too much in love with your subject. Um, George Herbert Walker Bush was not a perfect man, but he was the last of his kind, and he definitely repays our attention, particularly in an era where things seem to work less well. The new book by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Meacham is Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush. John, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for making this time for us. I'm delighted. Looking forward to being there. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is associate producer with help on the phones today from Natalie Kalman-Kuhn. Our executive producer is Jeff Whittington. I'm on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. The show's email address is think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.